pray, please, before we start. Father, we thank you that we have been gifted this day to remember, to remind each other, and to celebrate, God, who you are and all that you've done for us. And I pray that as we look into your word, our faiths would grow stronger, our hope would grow brighter. And I pray that our vision would expand and our commitment to you and to your kingdom would grow even more deeper and stronger. We come at this time into your hands, Lord, as we look into your words, speak to us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. And the people say, Amen. Come with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I'm going to read from the first verse till verse 12, which gives us an account of what happened that morning. I know that we've seen uh, important parts of it in the dance, in the skit, but let's look into the scriptures to understand what happened that morning as recorded in one of the gospel accounts of Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven disciples and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them, but Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking, and he saw the linen wrappings only. He went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Today, believers and worshippers all over the world, we remember and celebrate with utmost delight the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me clarify, because... For many years, before I came to know Jesus personally and experienced His love and presence in my life, I thought that the resurrection simply meant that Jesus' spirit came alive and appeared. But when we look into the scriptures, the gospel accounts tell us that it was not just a spiritual vision. It was flesh and blood. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. I hope you understand what that statement means. Now for us, it means that all that Jesus said, as recorded in the Bible, all that he did, and that all that he promised is true. And not just that, but all of God's promises are true. Now consider for a moment what mankind has accomplished in these thousands of years. We've built spaceships that leave our solar system. We've transplanted hearts into weak old babies. We've computerized everything from architecture to archeology span to zoology. 
we made tremendous progress in so many areas of life, then why should today we go backward 2,000 years? Why should we step into history to put our faith into an event that defies the laws of science and logic? Time would not permit me to fully explore and explain the details, the amazing facts of the historicity of this event of singular and primary importance. But I'm still going to make an attempt in some ways to deepen our faith and to expand our vision about this amazing king, Jesus Christ. What does the resurrection mean to us? Firstly, it tells us that this king is true. He is not a liar. He is true. Every word that he said, every act that he did is true. The Bible makes this fact clear that when Jesus walked the face of the earth, as he interacted with the masses and with religious leaders and with the authorities of the day, there were many who falsely accused him. They accused him of many things. For example, they accused him of being demon-possessed. They accused him of being a liar. They accused him of being a glutton. They accused him of being a sinner because he was always found to be mostly with people who were controversial in society. And they even called him an imposter. That means you are a fraud. Now, not too long back, I read about some of the most top imposters of fraudulence of the world. It's an interesting read, hilarious at times. One of them especially caught my attention. His name was Victor Lustig. You can read about him. Now, Victor Lustig was an amazing trickster. He's known as the man who sold the Eiffel Tower. He was born in 1890 in Bohemia, Czechoslovakia, if you can pronounce that without a lisp. He established himself by working scams on the ocean liners steaming between Paris and New York. So what would Victor do? He would dress up really well. He was an amazing linguist. He spoke multiple languages. He was very charming. And he would present to the passengers on board these liners a machine that he claimed printed money, original dollar bills. He lamented about the fact that they printed only $100 bill every six hours. So the passengers and the clients would get totally taken up and they would pay amounts of up to $30,000 per machine. And they would buy it and they would put it in their room and they would wait six hours for $100 bill. Very hopeful. Another six hours for another $100 bill. Their hopes are going really up high. But after that, it would only print blank notes. And by the time they realized that they were scammed, there was no sign of dear Victor Lustig. But the top of the pops was Victor's claim to be able to sell the Eiffel Tower. What really happened was in 1925, a newspaper article in Paris discussed the problems the city was having maintaining the Eiffel Tower. Is there anybody who does not know what the Eiffel Tower is? Don't put your hand up. Okay. 
So what Victor Lustig did after reading the article, he dressed up and personified himself as a government official, a top government official, and got in touch with six metal scrap dealers in the city. <clears throat> and he had a meeting with them and said, you know what? We've got to really deal with the Eiffel Tower, and I'm making you an offer, and the one who bids the highest, I'm going to sell you in scrap the Eiffel Tower. And they believed him. And not long after that, Victor Lustig was on a train to Vienna in a suitcase full of money. The one who was tricked, the scrap dealer, found it too embarrassing even to report it to the police. That he was tricked into believing that he was going to buy the Eiffel Tower for scrap. That was Victor Lustig for you. Well, these kind of fraudsters don't last long, my friends. To be a fraud or imposter, one can say and do what they want about anything and get away with it for most of the time, though rarely for all of the time. You can't say that I am going to rise from the dead and get away with it. Especially when you're in a land surrounded by religious experts who are waiting for you to make a single mistake in what you say and do. Further to that, it's a land that was aggressively occupied by the world's most disciplined and brutal armies of the Roman Empire. Truth is not negotiable, my friends. And I want to encourage this to people who are in this room who are not only new, but even the believers. Statements of fact of history are not open to question. When we read, for example, the Battle of Panipat. Have you heard about the Battle of Panipat? Okay. Now, when we read, for example, the Battle of Panipat, we are obligated to believe it. Although none of us over here were personally there to observe the war and the details. What we know about it is supported by the written testimony of those who were there and by the scholarship of later inquirers who studied that war. Though these accounts may differ in minor details, mostly we come to an agreement and understanding of who fought the wars, where it was fought, of how many people died, what were the casualties, what were the results of the war. In a historical sense, I dare say today that the resurrection stands on ground that is more solid than the records of the Battle of Panipot or any other historical event in the history of mankind. Reliable witnesses wrote about the meeting and talking with Jesus after his death. Think about it, man. These guys had breakfast with Jesus. After he rose from the dead. Man, I wouldn't be able to digest that salmon. Skeptical enemies notice his disappearance from the tomb. Extra-biblical historical reports were given of his resurrection. Eyewitnesses of Jesus' post-death appearances died. They died defending this absolute truth. I saw him alive. Even so, many still don't believe. You know, let me say this. A little touchy thing. You know, I've found that Christmas is celebrated far more with pomp than Easter or Resurrection Sunday, as you call it. And I feel one of the reasons is because the church 
wants to confess what it believes, but in a lower volume. The church wants to say loudly, Jesus was born. Because there's nothing too controversial about that, except when you magnify into how he was born. But the church says it with a lower volume, he's risen. But I think the time has come if you and I truly believe the volumes must go up in this nation. Jesus is alive. You know, when somebody chooses not to believe, or if there's somebody over here who says, I doubt that something like that ever happened. You know, there can be no picking and choosing when somebody makes a statement like, <clears throat> I will rise from the dead. You know, just imagine if, take me for example, I'm putting myself as an imposter. And I say and do a lot of things while I'm alive. And one of the things that I claim is that I will come alive after I'm dead. And I die, and I don't come alive. What would you think about everything that I said and did up till my death? Exactly. But what if the person really comes back from the dead? Then it authenticates and endorses every word that was said and every act that was done. Now, history likes to paint Jesus with different colors. Good teacher, prophet, was a good man. But if you believe those things, not taking into account his claim that he himself said that this, this, this is going to happen to me. In Luke chapter 9, this is what he said. You don't have to taunt it. It can be displayed on the screen. This is what Jesus told his disciples. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now when somebody makes a statement like that, there cannot be a middle ground. A compliment of a good teacher won't suffice. Or a prophet won't suffice. Because if he really came back from the dead, then you have to accept everything that he said and he didn't leave it to us to decide who he is. Because this man is not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. He's God in flesh. He's completed the whole circle of being born, lived a sinless life, suffered, died on the cross for our sins, for the sins of entire mankind, buried in a tomb, rose again. And you know what? The circle is not complete and that's where the clock is ticking 2,000 years later, beloved. Because when you up the volume that he is alive, you've got to also up the volume he's coming back. You know, one of, the, one of the stories that kind of caught my attention, not for uh, what it meant to me, but for how it was told and kind of appreciating the facts in which it happened. 
I know that it would, many of you probably would not appreciate it because it in no way affected us. And this is what happened in the United States in the 1960s. But this account was written by one of the people who was part of that issue. And I love the way the person brought it out. And this person is an ardent believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I kind of want to make an attempt to quote what he said. And maybe you can try and appreciate how it is put across. It really impacted me years ago when I read that. And I've kind of borrowed it from Chuck Colson. I don't know whether you heard of Chuck Colson. Uh, Charles, no, Chuck, Charles Colson. Charles Colson was the former presidential counsel. He was like the right-hand man of President Nixon. Does anybody remember President Nixon? Okay, sort of, okay. Now, may I read this for you and just listen to the facts? Because I love the way, that's the reason I don't want to dilute it. I just want to say it the way Charles Colson has written it. This was... President Nixon could not complete his term as a president because of a scandal that broke out, okay? And Charles Corson was his right-hand man. Now, here's it. Former presidential counsel Charles Corson tells us his Watergate experience can be used to support the testimony of the first century men who said they saw the resurrected Jesus. We saw the dance, we saw the skit that shows us the different emotions and the things that were going through the minds of Peter and the apostles, how do we know that Jesus was resurrected? We have the eyewitness accounts of the 11 apostles who were with him, and of course, the apostle Peter, uh, Paul, who saw him. They were with him before his resurrection and for the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. You're tracking me? They lived for as long as 40 years thereafter, never once denying that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Now, what does that have to do with Watergate scandal? I tell you, in June 1972, this is Charles Colson saying, I was home on a weekend with my wife and children. We had a few days off because President Nixon was in Key Biscayne, Florida. My phone that was connected to the White House rang. It was John Elitchman. He told me that some burglars had broken into the Democratic National Headquarters in Washington. I started laughing hysterically because I thought to myself of all the ridiculous places for anybody to break into in Washington, D.C., I went away from that phone call, shaking my head and feeling a little despair. I thought, now we have an election campaign issue, but it'll go away after the election. Well, as you know, it didn't. The log showed that in the months immediately following the 1972 election, I was with President Nixon more than any other aide. Watergate never came up. We first started to discuss it in February 1973 when the Irvin hearing started. On March 21st, 1973, hear this. John Dean walked into the Oval Office and said, Mr. President, there is a cancer growing on your presidency. That's the first time President really knew there was a conspiracy in the White House. That's the first time it became a criminal act inside the White House. John Dean's memoirs record that three days after that meeting in the Oval Office, he began to get nervous of his own role. That's when he hired a lawyer on April 8th. Dean went to the prosecutors to bargain for immunity so that he would not be prosecuted. In turn, he would testify against the president. Later, he said, I did it to save my own skin. When he went into the prosecutors to bargain for immunity, it was all over. Then the other eight started to go in one by one. I took a lie detector test and my lawyers leaked it to the New York Times. Everybody started to scramble for cover. The Watergate cover was actually over because because Mr. Nixon's presidency was doomed. 
Now, if you stop and figure it out, you will see that the Watergate cover-up actually lasted three weeks or less. How many weeks? Three weeks or less, from March 21st to April 8th, 1973. Now, put yourself in our position. Here we are, the 12 most powerful men in the United States of America. All the power of government were at our fingertips, but we could not keep our life together for three weeks. The most powerful men in the world could not hold on to a lie. So weak is man that we couldn't do it. Are you going to tell me that those powerful apostles who were outcasts in their own land could be stoned, persecuted, beaten, whipped, thrown to the lions, some for 40 years, never once denying that Jesus was raised from the dead? Impossible, humanly impossible, unless they had seen the risen Christ face to face. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul would have just been another John Dean. If Jesus is raised from the dead, I'm absolutely intellectually positive that he was, and the evidence of history is overwhelming. It is not only a matter of faith, but of deepest intellectual conviction and of the greatest consequence for mankind. My dear beloved, let me tell you something this morning. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, one day you have a day of reckoning with him. One day you're going to meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I hope you'll be ready for that day. This King is true. But here's the good news. This King is most good. I'm so glad that when he rose from the dead, he didn't say, Pontius Pilate, you ordered my crucifixion. I'm coming for you. He didn't go up to the chief priests and the elders and say, you shamed me. I'm coming back for you. He didn't go to Peter and say, shame on you, Peter. After all these three years, this is what you did for me. I am so glad that to the worst of the enemies and to the cowards and to the ones who rejected him and shamed him, Jesus had only one thing to offer, love and forgiveness. This king is a good king, my brothers and sisters. And I encourage you and plead with you this morning that you take your offer of love and forgiveness. And if you have truly genuine, deep intellectual questions, Journey with us. Let us help you to know Jesus just like he touched our lives years ago. For us, Jesus is not just a concept and a theory. He's a real person. Just a few nights before, I was telling my daughter the story of Thomas. And I helped her understand how Thomas needed help, which Jesus graciously offered in order to help him believe in him. But I told my daughter this. I said, you know, baby, you and I and Mama are more blessed than Thomas because we have not seen and we still believe. Because in so many other ways that are more than sight, we've experienced his love, his presence, his provision, his goodness, and his leading in our lives. The last thing I want to say, my friend, what does this mean to us today on April 21st, 2019? What does it mean? I tell you what it means the most important thing. Jesus is coming back to planet Earth. And the clock is really ticking. We often overlook this aspect of the resurrection of Jesus, of how it signals that the time is short and that the day is hastening. And just like an alarm that keeps beeping, if you remember and recollect how your car beeps when you begin to reverse. And initially there's no beep and then you're coming near to an object and it begins to beep. And then as you draw more near, the beep just goes more frequent and louder. Are you familiar with that? 
if you're not getting to a contrite? And what happens? If you ignore, you crash. My dear brothers and sisters, this beep is not just taking its time now. The beep is getting louder and faster. Jesus is coming back, my friends. He's coming back to planet Earth. And the Bible says that every eye will see him. But there are two kinds of people when he comes. The ones who are waiting with joyful expectation. Like many of us. We're going to be so excited when he comes back. The Bible says the heavens and the skies will be rolled up like a curtain. Can you imagine? And we will see our Lord come back. But for those who are not prepared, it's going to be a fearful expectation of judgment. But I pray that we will do our part of telling people, increasing the volume of our voice and telling them that Jesus rose from the dead. He was not just born in a manger, but he lived a life without sin. That he who knew no sin would become a sin for us that we might receive the righteousness of God in him. The holy wrath of God, the righteous judgment of God that should have come upon us was laid and absorbed by Jesus so that it would not come upon us. And every penalty and consequence of sin that should have been ours was taken by Jesus upon himself. My beloved, today in just a few moments, I'm going to pray for people to be healed. You may say, Shannon, on what basis? Because I know that my Savior, he took those stripes and those wounds upon his body. The Bible says that by his wounds we are healed. I'm going to pray for families to be blessed. I'm going to pray for marriages to be blessed. You may say, Shannon, on what basis will you pray for families to be blessed and marriages to be blessed and for children to be blessed and for people in their workplace to be blessed? Because the Bible says that Jesus became a curse for us so that we would receive the blessing of the Father. My dear brothers and sisters, do you have a need in your life? Look to the risen Lord, not just the crucified Savior. Do you, have a, do you have an oppression in your life? Do you have questions in your life? Is there an emptiness in your life? Look to the crucified Savior who is now the risen Lord. And He will meet your every need. He will satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. He will, need you, he will meet you where you need Him the most in your life. Because Jesus is alive. He's the risen King. He's a good King. And He's true. And He's coming back again. Do you know him? I want to pray for people over here right now. And especially if there's people who've come here for the first time. And you're wondering why these people so excited about something that happened 2,000 years ago. I've tried to explain. What happened 2,000 years ago doesn't just have significance for mankind in time and space, but significance for all eternity. I pray that Jesus would become real for you and you would experience his love and his presence. He's more real than the air that we breathe. Sometimes I have my daughter ask me, Dada, why can we not see Jesus? And I say, baby, do you see the air? She says, no, Dada. I say, do you feel it? She says, yes. I said, Jesus is more real than the air that we breathe. We can't see him, but we can experience his presence in our life. And I pray that Jesus will become more real to you than the air that you breathe. Would you bow your heads with me, please? And close your eyes if you, if you may. I want to pray for a few things right now, quickly. One is I want to pray for people who've come here for the first time. 
And then I want to pray for any kind of need that may be there in your life. And any kind of situation that you're facing. Or if there's any desire in your heart, I want to invite you to bring it to the Lord. And I pray that according to His word, His will, and His purpose for your life, that God would, would answer your prayer. Father, I come to you, Lord, right now with all of my brothers and sisters sitting in this hall. God, what an amazing thing that as we believe and as we think that you are here right now in this hall, that you are here by your spirit, that Jesus, you know every heart, you can see every need, and you hear every cry. You know the joy that is bubbling in so many of us, but you also see the ones who are cowering in pain and shame. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would touch, that you would speak, that you would meet every person here where they need you the most. I thank you, Jesus, that you didn't come only for the strong. You didn't come for the ones who were famous. But I thank you that you came for people like me who were in hiding in shame. I thank you, Jesus, that on that road to Jerusalem, knowing that your end was near, you still had time to stop and heal those blind men who cried out to you. I thank you, Jesus, that today you're in this place and you have stopped here and you will touch people. I pray for those who've come here for the first time and who don't know who you are or who know about you or they want to know you. Wherever they are in their faith and in how they relate or look to you, I pray that you would touch them. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. I pray loud right now for people who are sick in their body. Lord, who are struggling with medications and treatments. Father, I pray that right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that every person over here who's sick would be healed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Even as there are individuals here who are praying on behalf of loved ones who are not here, I pray that you would touch their loved ones. And I declare as Peter and John did, gold and silver I have not, but what I have in the name of the Lord Jesus, be healed. In the name of the Lord Jesus, be healed. Because by his wounds, we are healed. Lord, if there's any curse operating in any family, in any situation that an individual or family is facing, right now I break the power of that curse that is active. I break it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I pray and I speak blessing over every family that is represented here. I pray your peace over every family here, God. I pray your blessing over every family, God. Every marriage, every, every child here, every parent, every spouse. I pray your blessing, Father. I thank you, Jesus, that you are good. That is our hope. That you have risen from the dead. That you rule and reign over all. That you are in charge. You are in control. And Lord, to our utmost delight, you're going to come back again. But I remember what you said, Lord. When the Son of Man comes back on this earth, will he find faith? I pray that you will find faith in us. I pray that you will find this church doing what you've commanded us to do. That is to go and tell people 
about who you are and what you have done. I pray that we will not be silent. I pray that the volumes of our confession and our declaration would go up. That even as we declare that Christ is born, we would loudly declare that Christ is risen. He suffered in our place. He died. He was buried. But on the third day, God raised him up with power and declared him to be the Son of God. Lord, I thank you, God, for this morning that you fill our hearts with hope. You fill our hearts with joy. I pray, Lord, if there's any person over your God struggling with loneliness and hopelessness, I pray that they would know that they are not on often, that they are not alone, that you are with them. Touch them, God. Bless them, Lord. I thank you, God, that you are here. I thank you that you are here. I thank you that you are here. Bless your people. Come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do. And I thank you, God, that you command us to feed, tend, and shepherd your people. Because that is what means to love you. Thank you once again for this beautiful morning. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. And the people say, Amen.